it's taking similar or same risk and then making a higher return. Hello and welcome to Pillars of Wealth Creation, where we talk about creating financial success with a special focus on business and real estate. I'm your host, Todd Dexheimer. Now, let's get to it. Hello and welcome back to Pillars of Wealth Creation. I'm your host, Todd Dexheimer. With me, I got uh, Juan Herrera and I've got Julio, and I'm going to butcher this. I, I, I asked you before, uh, but I'm going to butcher it. So we got Julio Cachao. You say it, you say it the way you say it because I, I I don't have the 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 linguistics down. No problem. My my name is Julio Cacho. Cacho. There you Cacho. go. So, yeah, I knew I would butcher it. <laughs> uh, well, welcome to the show, gentlemen. I appreciate you joining me, and uh, you guys are both uh, founding partners of uh, Quanter Capital. And uh, why don't you, one of you just give us a bit about your backgrounds, where you came from, and uh, kind of what your focus is today. Sure. Thanks for having us. Um, so Julio and I started Quanter Capital in 2015 as a single family office. Uh, previously, I was running a hedge fund for about 10 years. Um, we sold that hedge fund in 2015. Previous to that, I was at City as a private banker went to the University of Texas in Austin. Um, and then Julio and I have known each other for a while. And in 2015, started Quanter Capital to really manage the money of um, a few families here in Houston, which we're based in. And that company started to grow. Uh, we then opened the doors to other outside families and investors um, in 2017. And then last year, we also uh, merged our advisory practice with a group of gentlemen that left UBS and formed Inscription Capital. <clears throat> and today, Inscription Capital has a little bit over a billion dollars in assets under management. Um, Quantro Capital manages uh, a few investment strategies that Julio and I uh, still run for clients. So that's still up and running, um, but it's more of an asset manager. And, and that's the brief background for myself. I'll kind of let Julio explain a little bit about his background. I mean, um, uh, I'm, I'm just gonna add that um, I also teach at Rice University um, and I have a PhD in finance from Princeton University. And before meeting Juan Carlos, I was working for a, a, a private hedge fund in New York. Um, and, um, and then the rest is what Juan Carlos basically, basically said. Awesome. And so inscription capital, that's, that's your, uh, that's the main focus today. Is that right? Yeah. So both firms do the same thing in different, in different ways. So the way the Got industry it. works is that you have an investment consultant or you have a financial advisor that basically works with individuals, high net worth individuals or institutional investors you know, institutional investors are like pension funds or endowments or, or other financial advisors um, to help them kind of figure out how best to allocate their, their, their money. Um, <clears throat> what we do is we at Inscription Capital take a science-based approach to investing. What that means, I know science-based is a, is a fancy word, but what, what that really means is that we look at all the empirical evidence, all the peer-reviewed journals that are out there and basically translate those into optimal portfolios for clients. So there's two ways to really think about investing, right? You can either listen to uh, financial gurus or analysts or forecasters 
um, that there are abundance everywhere, right? On television, blogs, newspapers. Um, the problem with that is it's, if you step back for a second it, and you ask yourself, can people actually have a crystal ball and predict the future? It's kind of tough, right? I mean, not many people in 2019 with, when making their 2020 prediction said that, oh, we're going to be hit by a you know, coronavirus and the whole world is going to almost come to an end. <laughs> yeah. But that's okay because it, they're, they're, uh, predicting the future is practically impossible, right? There's yeah. too many variables that are involved here. And so then on the other side, you have, and by the way, if, if you do listen to someone that is selling X, Y, Z is going to happen, right? The world's going to end tomorrow or the stock market's going to go up forever um, and you should do this or that. Always kind of ask yourself, if this person is asked, actually yelling to us and screaming that X, Y, Z is going to happen, why is he telling everyone? Why wouldn't that person just be investing all his money into that if he's so certain that that's going to happen? Because if you're an investor and you're certain that something's going to happen, you're just going to want to probably do it yourself and hide it and not tell anyone about it because it's a kind of a comp it's a competitive game that we play in here in the investment world. Yep. And, um, and so on the other side, you have this whole, you know, universe of academia that has really rigorous work that has been done in the past 50 years regarding investing, right. And, and, and analyzing all different types of ways people invest from every type of asset class. And there's countless papers that have been written on this theories and very few people actually know about them because they're not easy to read. If you read these peer-reviewed academic journals, they've got all these formulas. It's not meant for the average person. So, but, but it is telling the truth, right? It is saying, here is the evidence. Here is what we see. And, it, and what I mean by empirical evidence is that it's actually proven, right? There is a way to prove it mathematically, right? What they're doing. And then it's taking that evidence and seeing, okay, how can I apply that into practice into the real world. And that's what we do, really. We try to help people kind of interpret that in a very simplistic way. So yeah, you're just taking that data. You're not looking into the future in crystal ball. I mean, yeah, you're certainly trying to figure out what, where trends are going, I would imagine, but you're looking at the data that's currently available and when you're assessing assets and- Yeah, I'll, I'll let Julio explain this, but this is basically like, I mean, Julio, maybe you can explain a little bit about the risk reward, but that's the, that's the core of the data. The data basically says that risk and reward are two sides of the same coin. And, and Julio, I mean, you can explain it better than I can, but why don't you explain that for us? Yeah, I mean, I think the main findings are that it's extremely unlikely to, to find free lunch, right, in, in, in the financial markets. Mm -hmm. uh, so be, because of this, uh, really, uh, the expected returns that that you are hoping to receive in the future come from the amount of risk that you take. So your compensation comes from the risk, that, the amount of risk that you take. So if you want, for example, high expected returns, that means that you have to take a good amount of risk, uh, as again, because there is no free lunch. Now, in contrast, if you're someone, someone that um, you are risk averse, uh, extremely risk averse, so you don't want to take any risk, then you should expect low returns, right? Um, so, so that's kind of the, 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 main, uh, the main idea behind, uh, behind what people have found or researchers have found in, uh, in finance using data. Um, and the facts, I mean, basically the facts uh, what it tells us is that it's extremely unlikely 
to find free lunch. Um, so, uh, and we see this because uh, people have run many tests in different, uh, in, in different investors that try to, to outperform uh, a market, for example. And what we see is that what empirical data tells us is that most of those investors are not going to outperform the market in the long run. Okay, so this is kind of evidence that is extremely uh, difficult to find free lunch. Otherwise, you will have many people, um, many people actually outperforming outperforming the market. So that those are the facts, right? I mean, those are the facts, and based on those facts, we try to help people to um, to form portfolios accordingly to the risk tolerance. And based on this, uh, we form these portfolios that will target a certain level of risk and they will give you some amount of expected return. So that's kind of the, of, of the idea. So you guys are dealing with mostly uh, fairly wealthy people funds, is that correct? We started off that way, um, okay. but no longer. Um, we actually, thanks to technology, we're now able to really help you know, people that have, they're just starting out saving money and investing mm -hmm. all the way up to, you know, billionaires. So yeah. it's really a vast, the thing is, is that there's, I think there's another misconception. And this is again, because of the, I guess the, all the information out there and all the, 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 the way kind of the financial and the wealth management industry has been created where there's a, there's a thinking out there that the more wealthy someone is, that the more ha they have, they're going to have access to these unique investment deals, and they're going to always make more money. And the, and the bottom line is actually there, there's a lot of there's a lot of evidence out there that's what ha ends up happening sometimes when people end up becoming more and more wealthy is they uh, they end up paying a lot more fees and they in, in different types of investments, right? In like you know limited partnerships or in real estate investments that ha that carry higher fees with them. And there is no evidence that says that <clears throat> people with x you know a million dollars or more are going to outperform and make better investments than people underneath it, right? At the end, the formula that Julio is saying is understanding this very difficult concept that it is very unlikely for most, for, you know, the vast majority of people, not just 50%, like I'm saying 70, 80, 90% of, of us that in the long run over a 20, 30, 40 year period, we're going to do better than if we just, you know, invested in a, a very broadly diversified portfolio of say equities or bonds, depending on our risk tolerance, right? What kind of asset class or real estate investment trusts or so I think people just fail to realize what their opportunity costs are when they are investing. Um, all of us have this entrepreneurial spirit, I think, especially in the United States where um, we always think that, you know, we know that the facts are all of us kind of intuitively know that when we start a business, the likelihood of that business you know, succeeding over the long haul is very low. We know that about 70% of companies close their doors within the first three years, right? And we, yet we still do it because we have this kind of spirit in America, I think of the entrepreneurial, which is I think one of the great virtues of the United States. The problem though, is that it's not gonna work out for most people, right? So for most people, um, they're, they're gonna try and take, whether they know it or not, absorb uh, enormous risks, right? And, and, and those risks end up not paying out, right? And then they go bankrupt or they, they end up. Now, if the ones who do end up becoming successful taking those risks are the stories that we hear about, you know, the Jeff Bezos and the, 
and yeah. the Bill Gates and everyone like that. And so it, it's kind of funny. It's like, I always say, look, if you want to become very wealthy, right? If wealth is something that is very important to you monetarily well, monetarily well, right? Um, you, you're going to have to you're going to have to go and, and, and work hard and do everything that, that people say that you need to do, right? To become wealthy. But look at it as like, it's kind of like buying the lottery, right? If, you, if you're going to win the lottery, you're going to have to buy the ticket, right? To, to be wealthy, the, the lottery, the purchase of the lottery ticket is working hard and being yeah. disciplined, but yeah. that's not, that's not alone going to get you the wealth. There's a lot of luck in there too, right? That you're just going to have to, you know, be okay with, understand yeah. Right. Yep. And I think that's where we kind of help people realize that to say, okay, look, the most important thing that you need to decide on as an investor and will help you with that. And I think there's a lot of coaching involved with that is figuring out that you clearly understand what are the risks that you're going to be taking either in private investments with, you know, you're starting a business or investing in the stock market or the bond market or real estate. What are those risks? And do you understand clearly what those risks are? Right. Do you understand your worst case scenarios? okay, then we can optimize portfolios for you, right? Because if you're someone who's willing to take a lot of risk, which a lot of people are, especially entrepreneurs who start their own businesses, they might want to learn that there's other ways to maybe compound wealth at a higher rate, right? You just have to be able to understand those risks too, right? Um, and the biggest thing I think that, 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 um, that, that especially entrepreneurs and, and, and people that are starting to create wealth miss is, in the private markets, you don't see this mark to market. You don't know what the value of things are. So psychologically, we kind of are okay with it. If we invest in a real estate project or if we invest in a private company, right? We don't, we know how the company's doing, but there's no, there's no one buying it, right? There's no one offering a purchasing price for the whole company every single day. There's no one in the real estate market, right? Bidding on a building every day. So you, you know what your yield is, you know what your cash flows are, but you don't know what it's worth right? You really don't know what it's worth. It's actually worth zero until someone makes a bid on it, right? In the public markets, we do see everything every day because we can see there are people buying and selling every day. But the problem with that is that psychologically, people start treating it more like a casino. And so it's like, oh, wait, this is going up. But at the end of the day, if you own equity, either in a private investment, in a private company or in a public company, it's equity you own, right? It's a piece of that company. If you own a bond or if you lent a company money, it's the same thing. So I think we try to help people come back to the realization that equity can be public or private. You know, if you own a debt instrument, it could be um, public, public or private. If you own real estate, even it could be public or private, right? Again, what are you trying to do? And do you understand clearly what it is you're owning? And don't try, don't let the psychological uh, either, you know, casino-esque mark to market of the public markets get in your way. And also don't, don't be relaxed that just because you can't see the price of something every day doesn't, doesn't mean that there's no volatility there. <laughs> yeah, for sure. When you're, when you're, um, you guys are looking at some of these different assets and, and you can obviously put people into, you know, stocks and, and bonds. And do you, do you have a lot of alternative assets that you can put people into as far as investing in private businesses, investing in real estate, like you talked about, uh, things like that, or you guys, uh, helping people navigate through that, or is it mostly yeah. into the public market? No, look at the end, alternative assets are just a way, a different way that you end up using the basic assets, right? So like an alternative, a hedge fund even, or a private equity investment is just a repackaging up of the traditional assets, right? Yep. So if you invest in stocks and bonds and that's it, and then you put in there a hedge fund or an alternative investment in real estate, 
alternative investments, I think this are just a very fancy word <laughs> to say they're actively managed. Most alternative investments are going to be very high in fees. And by the way, I'll let Julio explain this, but fees are probably the most important thing that people need to pay attention to in the long run. That's the main reason why people don't outperform in the long run. Sure. Because even if they do find a manager or someone that's doing XYZ and making a lot of money, uh, their fees usually are higher. And they're the ones at the end keeping any alpha. And the investors are usually the ones doing underperforming the market. So it's great for the managers, not so great for the investors at the sure. end of the day. Sure. And alternative investments end up having very, very high fees, especially because they charge a performance fee. So, you know, a typical alternative investment in a hedge fund or private equity or real estate fund will charge probably anywhere from 1.5 to 2% in a management fee every year, no matter what happens. And then they'll charge you a promote of usually, a, you know, a performance fee of like at least 20%, right? And so those are very high fees. You don't, you don't have those fees really in the public markets, especially the performance side, right? Yeah. Um, and so when it's all said and done, it, it sounds nice. And I've heard this debate a lot when people say, well, performance fee is good because it aligns my interests with the client. Like if I'm a manager and I charge you only a performance fee, I'm saying, look, I make money if you make money. Yeah, yeah. But that's a lot that I'm giving you. I'm the, I'm the investor and I'm taking all the risk, right? You're not putting any money up and you're the one taking 20% of the profits. Like that's, yep. that's, that's a lot. <laughs> but isn't, um, a, isn't, a, a, isn't a company also taking a large chunk of the profits? Like, like let's say I invest in Walmart stock. They're, they're, they're making money, right? The, the, the fund manager is not making money, but Walmart's certainly making money. So, okay. So say that again. So if Walmart. Well, like, let's say I invest in Walmart stock, right? So let's compare Walmart stock to a real estate uh, stock or fund, right? Uh, private real estate fund. The general partner in the real estate fund is charging, let's call it 20%. Um, they're they're going to be making that on that equity. That's because they're running that company, right? The, the, piece of real estate. Well, in Walmart's case, they're making money as well. Now the stock broker, whoever is, you know, selling that stock to you, they're making their fee, but the company Walmart is making profit. So isn't, isn't that kind of similar or maybe I'm disconnecting the two? No, I think it's different. Uh, when you invest, when you're, when you're an investor, a direct investor on Walmart, mm -hmm. you own the, the, the cash flows of Walmart directly. So you have to pay the, employee, the employees as, a, as a, an investor, but you basically you receive without paying any fee the, the, the profits of the company because you have claims on the profits of the company. Mm -hmm. uh, what Juan Carlos is saying is that, so you have a company like Walmart and on top of that, you have an intermediary that decides to invest in Walmart. But you have to pay that intermediary also. So it's different. So, um, so if you invest directly to Walmart, you don't have to pay to the intermediary, okay? So uh, it, it, when you hire an active manager, you are investing in different companies, but on top of that, you are paying the person that is deciding in which companies to invest. So it's double. If you want to say it in terms of, uh, if you think that um, paying employees, for example, in Walmart is paying a fee, 
you are actually paying double if you hire an active manager because you're paying the you're paying the, the well, but isn't your more. active manager kind of the ceo some of those the top top people right where in and the G gp would be kind of the ceo right so the gp will be the ceo of the intermediary that decides in which companies to invest yeah so you are paying an extra fee there right i mean you're paying a fee to the to that gp uh, yeah, you could you, you could just invest, invest directly. Then you don't pay that that person, right? That GP. But then so you have, but then you have to do the work, right? So if you invest directly in the real estate, you actually have to make the decisions day to day. Um, you have to call the maintenance person. You have to call the person to go lease the property. You have to make all the decisions. Where if I'm investing in Walmart, I'm not calling the employee going. Hey, uh, you're not doing a good job in aisle three. Would you please, you know, pick up the slack a little bit? Right. Um, but but, but uh, uh, what I'm saying is, um, so let's not talk in terms of real estate for now. Let's talk yeah. just in, uh, uh, in different public companies, right? Just to, to, to make the analogy. So you can invest directly in different companies, right? Or you can hire someone to mm -hmm. invest for you in these different companies. Mm -hmm. The only thing I'm saying is that if you invest directly in the companies, you avoid paying the fee to yeah. the person that is deciding in which companies to invest. Now your right. question is, okay, but then you will have to, to, to decide which companies to invest on. Our philosophy is basically the best thing to do is to actually invest in all the companies accordingly to the market. Yep. That's that's the simplest research that you need to do. Just so instead of paying somebody to, to make those decisions, just buy them all. Buy them <laughs> all. Buy them all. Yeah. Exactly. So like in real estate, to use your real estate example, right? Like you can, here's where people need to, I think, make their analysis. Real estate has been a great asset class, right? It's been going up for now, you know, since the financial crisis on a yeah. rocket ship, <laughs> yeah. right? Yeah. And so- what ends up happening with real estate is that people need to be, you know, be aware, I think, of two main things. One is, what is your opportunity cost? Meaning, okay, is it worth it to pay a two and 20, these, these high fees, to a yep. privately held limited partnership that invests in multifamily or commercial real estate, right? Is it worth that fee? Or are you better off just investing in, say, a Vanguard REIT index, which is gonna, not going to cost you two and 20. It's going to cost you like 13 basis points. Yep. So it's very simple. You can just kind of look at the a chart of the Vanguard read index and see what has it done the past 10 years. It's up like 300%, 350%. And so if your investments right, are, 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 are taking similar risk, meaning if you're investing in almost over 100,000 properties right, across the country and you're making about the same, or if you're outperforming, if you're making more than that, then the, the, the net of fees, then it might be justified to pay the fees. Yep. Sometimes people will say, well, my, I've made a little bit more investing in five or six projects. I'm like, well, yeah, if you invest in only five or six projects and the entire real estate market went up, right? And you made a little bit more than that over the same period, that's probably not outperforming. It's just that you're taking on more risk and therefore you're being compensated for that risk. So it's just to understand why it is we're not debating whether one is better than the other. We're just saying it's understand for it's very important for investors to understand why it is that they're making yeah. money, right? Is it because of their skill or is it because of the market going up and they're taking more risk than the market? Well, yeah, it's, a, it's that risk reward that you mentioned earlier. I Correct. Mean, there, certainly, could you make more on 
the the hedge fund or the real estate uh, private, you know, yes, certainly. But you are, as you said, you're taking more risk. It's you're investing in one property, five properties versus hundreds and Correct. hundreds of properties. But what ends up happening a lot is that sometimes, a lot of times you'll be surprised how many people will say, well, man, I haven't made 350% in the past 10 years in real estate. I'm like, well, yeah, then you're, then you're not out. Then you're, then you're definitely losing on an opportunity cost of taking, mm-hmm. you're taking more risk and making less money. <laughs> yeah. So therefore what we're trying to show people is that in that scenario, you're better off just investing in the whole market, not trying to, and, and especially if they're charging you high fees, yeah. right. For, for that. So that's yeah. kind of the analysis that I would like people to see. Right. Uh, uh, uh. And then you have this whole argument, especially in real estate, going back to the private stuff, because that's where people will say, well, private real estate's less volatile. Like, no, it's not. It's just, there's just no, there's just no one buying it. Right. (laughs) There's just no one buying it. It's real estate. Again, it's getting cash flows from, from buildings. Yeah. And then lastly, I think people need to be aware of in real estate is the, the amount of leverage, right. That's always going to be a factor, right. So it goes back to the risk. If you invest in a portfolio of multifamily, you know, units with one manager that uses 80% financing, and you have another manager that uses only 50% financing, but you say, hey, this guy that uses 80% financing gives me higher returns. I'm going to go with him. I'm like, yeah, he's giving you higher returns because he's taking more risk. He's having more debt. Yeah. <laughs> right. So it goes back yeah. to that analogy too. Yeah. Yeah. There's, there's definitely, there's definitely a lot to be looking at, especially as you're looking at some of these, um, and, you know, and that applies to all assets. asset classes, real estate, equities, yeah. bonds, everything. Right. And so I think that's what we tried really to focus hit people understanding. And this is what the science says, right? This is what the academic literature kind of really enforces people to make sure that they're aware of this so that they can make better investment decisions. Yeah. Yeah. Good points. Um, what are, what is a, what is a mistake? Um, what's a, what's a mistake that you guys have made and how have you learned from it? Oh, I mean, I've made a lot of mistakes. <laughs> oh, come on. <laughs> a lot of mistakes. Oh, yeah. What's, what's one that maybe we can all learn from that you, you think would, would be beneficial? Yeah. I'll start off by saying that I made the mistake that I truly believe that I could outperform the market because yeah. I think we all believe that, right? We're all have, if we all have this entrepreneurial spirit, which I, I have, right. Um, it is a very humbling experience to realize once you start really digging in and seeing how you can compare your returns to the market in a risk adjusted way that you kind of get the, you kind of, you kind of start learning about, Oh, wow. You know, this is, this is hard. And it makes sense because investing is kind of like sitting at a poker table playing with everyone and you're competing. Right. So if you think about it, right. Investing against investing is a zero sum game in the sense that you have the market, which is the sum of all its participants, right. In any market, when I say the market, I mean any market, right? Mm-hmm. So any market that you're investing in, take the sum of everyone that's investing in that, right? And right down the middle of that sum, you have the market average, which is the market return, right? So that means that for every person that outperforms the market, there has to be someone that underperforms it by the exact same amount. That has to hold true, right? That's yeah. just pure math, right? So now you can see this game that we're playing, right? We're all competing against each other to outperform the market. And let's just say half of us do and half of us don't. The problem is that now that you add costs to the equation, that line right down the middle is no longer down the middle. It's gonna move over where about say 40% of people outperform, 60% of the people underperform. So the majority will underperform just because you added this cost to the equation. Now to repeat the exercise over and over and over again, 
what the academic evidence shows us too, is that those 40% that outperform are not persistent. They're not the same ones in every observation over and over again. So they're really so they're different people every time back to average. Exactly. So what happens is as this plays out, those after 30 years that are left outperforming are like 3%, 4%. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and then the worst case is you don't know. And there's no way of knowing you're going to have lucky people in there. Kind of like the guy that flipped tails, you know, eight times out of 10, <laughs> right? You're going to have lucky guys in there mixed in with skillful people. There's yeah. just no way of knowing how to yeah. disentangle the two, right? Yeah. And I think that's the biggest mistake I made early on, which I was not, I did not know. You don't know what you don't know. And I think the more we, I started learning about all this, especially from Mr. PhD over here, Julio, <laughs> <laughs> um, that's, that's, I think, the, the big, one of the biggest lessons I learned. Julio, I don't know about you. Yeah, awesome. Uh, yeah, definitely. I would say that my two biggest mistakes are sometimes overconfidence and sometimes the opposite, actually. Uh, uh, so in terms of overconfidence, I mean, even, even, even uh, that I did a PhD, right? I mean, I was involved in, in, um, in the scientific literature. I mean, after I finished my PhD, sometimes I actually doubt about science. Uh, um, and uh, so when I was working at this hedge fund, for example, I was like, oh, maybe it's, it's possible to perform. So I, I had these doubts, right? And, and sometimes even I thought that maybe I, I could be smarter than everybody else, and then I could outperform. But the thing is that there are so many smart people in the world, so many smart people, that uh, it's extremely difficult to, to outperform. I think the problem is, is exactly that, that there are very clever and smart people. So that makes the markets extremely competitive and extremely difficult to, to outperform. Um, so, so I think I lost some time uh, while I was trying to figure out uh, science versus anecdotes. And, um, and yeah, probably that was my losing some time there uh, when I was doubting. So if you can't, if you can't outperform the market, then well, we're not saying you what's can't the strategy? Outperform we're not saying you can't outperform it. We're saying yeah. it's very unlikely. Yeah. Well, so, so if it's a very unlikely, then, then what, like, what's the strategy? What, what, what makes, you know, why, why not just like just randomly pick a bunch of stocks then? No, randomly picking a bunch of stocks is trying to outperform the market, right? What we're saying is now that you know this, we're not saying you can't make higher returns. So there's two different things here. Outperforming means that you're taking the same level of risk and making a higher return. Okay, if I invested in five stocks and last year, let's say I said I made 50% returns and the S&P made 15, I could say I outperformed. No, I didn't. I picked five stocks. <laughs> I took on a lot more risk <laughs> and made my return, right? I, I could have easily lost all my money too because those five stocks I picked could have gone bankrupt, right? So taking outperforming, what we're saying is make sure that you're, that, that, you know, Again, it's, 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 it's taking similar or same risk and then making a higher return, right? So what we're trying to make investors see is that you can make higher returns in the market. Yes, you just have to be aware that to do that, you have to take on more risk. And there's lots of ways to take on more risk 
more carefully than what we know how to do. Most of the time, people will take on more risk by concentrating more, right? By, by instead of pick, picking 500 stocks or replicating the S&P 500, they'll pick five stocks, right? That's concentration, right? That's the way most people do it. There's a lot of literature out there that you can do it in different ways and still remain very diversified, right? You have factors, you have factors are, for example, you can use leverage, you can use a tilt to value, you can use a tilt to momentum, you can use a tilt to these certain kind of um, factors that a uh, size effect or, and these are going to be applied into multiple different things where all these factors are doing are increasing your risk profile, right? To give you an opportunity to make a higher return. Right. So there's a way that we can teach people to say, hey, look, if you want to make 15% returns, have you thought about looking at it this way? There's no free lunch, like Julio said. This, we're not saying that this, that if we can try to help you make a return that's higher than the market, you're going to be outperforming. We're just saying, look, here's a way that you can try to look at risk in a different light and, and, and see it that way. Got it. Got it. That makes a lot of sense. Well, good stuff, guys. Um I think we could keep on talking about this for a long time, which I, I, I would enjoy, but um, for the sake of the podcast, I, I do need to wrap up. So I want to ask you guys a couple last questions and, uh, and then we'll, we'll get how people can reach you. So uh, what's a favorite book that each of you can recommend? Ooh, um, Julio, you want to go first on this one? Uh, I, uh, I have a few, so I can tell you, uh, one that I recommend is Thinking Fast and Slow by Daniel Kahneman. Mm -hmm. I really like that one. Uh, another that I like is uh, Success and Luck by Robert Frank. Um, I, I, also, I also like uh, that one. Um, uh, another that I can recommend is, uh, is Fooled by Randomness by uh, Nassim Taleb. So those, these books are more are kind of explaining the behavior of, of people, how they decide, um, help, help us uh, to understand how we decide to, to invest, overconfidence, et cetera, et cetera. Because as, as we said, I mean, I think that the science is clear that it's better for people to replicate the market instead of, instead of outperforming. But these books that I'm recommending help you to understand why. Basically, that's, that's, that's the idea. Awesome. Uh, and then I would say uh, A Random Walk Down Wall Street is a very, it's a classic book. It's been around forever, ages. Um, um, and it, it really talks about a lot of the theory behind it in a very simple way to understand and digest. Um, and it's been, this book has been updated countless times in the past, say, 15, 20 years. Um, and then uh, another one I would say is a new one that just came out called The Psychology of Money. The Psychology of Money just came out. And I think it's great for people to kind of also get an understanding of our, like Julio said, our behaviors, you know, um, around investing. Behavioral, I think, is, is going to be the most important thing people need to realize or be aware of because the, the formulas to investment to, to, to try to be a better investor are pretty straightforward. They're there. The, the biggest hurt, even if you know the formula, the hardest thing to do is sticking with it and understanding why you're having a hard time sticking with it. And it's our behavior. And I think it's really under, uh, important for people to understand that. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, all right. So last question before we wrap up, 
I'll, I'll let each of you go on this one. What are your three pillars of wealth creation? Um, three pillars of wealth creation is number one, understand that it is very unlikely to outperform the market. Just like you understand it's very unlikely to win the lottery. Doesn't mean it's impossible. It's just going to be very unlikely. Therefore, try to save and invest as early as possible in a very broadly diversified way, right? Where you're trying to replicate the markets as efficiently as possible, keeping your costs low. And, you know, at the end, time is the most important factor we have for investing. You know, I don't know if few people know this, but Warren Buffett's, Warren Buffett was worth his, you know, I think it's like 80, uh, I think it's like, yeah, 85 or 90% of his wealth was created after he was 50 years old. And that's because compounding, right? And so at the end, compounding wealth is the way to go for most people. I think that's going to give you the highest probability of achieving a, a nice retirement, nice success. Uh, and, 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 and understanding really taking a, a deep dive, I think, into the basics of the science of investing, I think is, the, is really important because it opens your eyes up to what the possibilities are. Absolutely. Will, you have anything? I mean, I, I, I also think the same way as Juan Carlos. I will add also that, um, that for entrepreneurs, for example, or for risk tolerant people that want to have high expected returns, there is a way to do it. Um, and, um, and, and a scientific way to do it, which is exactly what Juan Carlos was saying, which is if you really want high expected returns, there's no other way than taking a good amount of risk. Now, what is key is what is the risk that you want to take? Because not all, you don't get compensated by taking any risk, right? I mean, for example, if you buy a lot, as Juan Carlos was saying, a lottery ticket, or if you go to a casino, you're taking risk, but your expected return is negative, actually. So not, you don't get compensated for any risk. The one that you get compensated for is systematic risk. Actually, it's basically is the, 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 the economic risk, no? for example. Things, risks that affect all the assets at the same time, such as the stock market. Um, so if you want high expected returns, you can do it. Um, if you want to create wealth and you have patience and you are risk tolerant, you can do it basically doing two things, either using leverage, right? In, in a well-diversified portfolio, very well-diversified portfolio, and then you take leverage. That way, that way you are taking more risk, but also you're expecting a higher return or you can concentrate in some part of the economy. For example, you can invest in all the small companies in the US. That way you're gonna be well diversified. You are taking more risk, but you are hopefully expecting higher expected returns. So yeah, I mean, the main point here, or we want to try to say is diversify really well. Don't try to outperform the market and focus on your risk tolerance. That, that's what is key. Yeah, good stuff. Good stuff. All right, that, that seems like the overarching fo focus on what your risk tolerance is, and that's how you're going to get the returns that you're looking for if you take a scientific approach. That's right. Correct. 
Yeah. Correct. Awesome. Well, gentlemen, I really appreciate it. Uh, Juan Carlos, Julio, thank you so much for, for spending time with us. How can our listeners get in touch with you and learn more about what you guys got going on? So we have, um, um, I and another partner of ours at Inscription have a podcast going on too called Now Know This, where we talk about all these types of topics. We break them down into, you know, 30 minute to hour episodes and try to explain to people, you know, stuff about investments, economics, and behavior. Again, it's called Now Know This. Um, I'm on LinkedIn, Juan Carlos Herrera. And Julio, you want to give your, I think you're on Twitter, your Twitter handle? Yes. I mean, I'm also on LinkedIn. Uh, Julio Cacho and also I have a Twitter account uh, also you can look for me as Julio Cacho I am in, in, in Twitter great we'll put that stuff on the on the show notes too but appreciate you guys again appreciate uh, you joining us tons of great information so thank you so much and you guys have a fantastic rest of the day thank you, you too. thank you so much for the invitation thank you Hey, thanks so much for listening. I appreciate you being a loyal listener. Say, I would love to have you go on to our Facebook page and subscribe. Uh, give us a thumbs up. Go on to iTunes or wherever you listen and give us a rating and review. Don't forget to subscribe. Your rating review just helps us push this out to more and more people and continue to grow our audience and hopefully positively affect a ton of people out there that really need this and, and want this. So uh, the other thing I've got for you is a free ebook on my website. So go on to venturedproperties.com, venturedproperties.com and download our free ebook uh, on real estate and on syndication. And I've got some data points in there, some really good stuff for you. So I'd love to have you take a look at that. It's free. I'm not expecting anything from it. Uh, and also look, if you want some help in multifamily, want some help learning, growing, getting your business off the ground, I would love to talk to you about what it would look like, uh, to work with me potentially and see if that's a good fit. So you can go to coachwithdex.com and check that out. And, uh, we can definitely have a, uh, a call. Thanks a lot for listening. You make it a fantastic rest of the day. I'll catch you on the next episode.